Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. With virtual reality, virtually everything will change. Discover opportunities in a transforming world. B of AML.com slash VR. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best of economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. This is a joy. I mean, we can look at the currents, the, the screen, and fold it all in together. But let us get a more holistic view, particularly with Chair Yellen uh, speaking today, and that would be with Bruce Kasman of uh, J.P. Morgan. Bruce, you've got a great team, and you put out a Friday note with Mr. Faroli and the others. How do you put the note together? Do you have like a 10 a.m. meeting on Friday where you go, you do this, you do this? Or do you start like on Tuesday to generate that Friday 7 p.m. note? Well, we've got a team of about 30 people around the world who are kind of putting stuff together as the week goes on. We actually get together on Thursday morning and spend a good hour and a half or so <clears throat> kind of hashing out how to think about the pieces fitting into a global view and then going off and trying yeah. to synthesize that. You did a Madame Lagarde note this week. She came out with an update and really said world GDP is pretty good. EM's yeah. pretty good. China's pretty good. And then she lectured the U.S., as Madame Lagarde is known uh, to do. Do you agree with that? Do you need to lecture the U.S. to get it going? No, I don't think – I'm not certainly going to lecture the United States. I think there's a lot we could be doing to help underlying performance in the U.S. But the U.S. is doing okay. U.S., I think, is part of a global economy that's doing pretty well here in terms of the, of the growth numbers. And I think that's going to continue to be the theme for the year, which is that this is a world which is – doing well, but it's not being driven centrally by U.S. dynamics and certainly not by U.S. policy stimulus. Bruce, are we going to get a lecture from Chair Yellen today? I don't think we're going to get a lecture. I think when Yellen comes to Congress for testimony, she's representing the committee. And I think what she's going to do is deliver the three messages she delivered, the committee delivered with the last meeting. One is their upbeat on growth. The other is for the time being, they're going to look through the low inflation readings. And third, they're getting close to starting to unwind the balance sheet. Let's stick with that looking through the inflation reading, because you also talk about how this inflation dip we've seen is not driven by faltering demand. Um, and, and actually, it keeps you pretty comfortable with maintaining your inflation forecast. You're not too worried about it. Um, I'm not confident in forecasting inflation. I think that's one of the points. There's a lot of things that drive inflation that are not macroeconomic driven. And I think that's part of what we're seeing. I think it's certainly part of the energy price fall we've uh, been watching. Uh, however, I think it is important to realize if demand is solid and the global demand indicators have been quite strong going into the second quarter, then the most likely outcome is that the inflation news is going to start to firm. And I think in an underlying sense, we're pretty comfortable with that. Without getting too cocky about what the next one or two prints are going to be, uh, certainly in the United States where there's a big focus on it. So by the second half, things will start to shape up. We believe so. We think that un in an underlying sense, U.S. core inflation is sitting right now close to 2 percent. And that's where we think the numbers will gravitate. I think the goods pricing has been depressed in a way that's out of line with the yeah. dollar and the uh, imports and PPI. 
Uh, and I think there's a couple of other technical things that probably held down inflation that are going to unwind here. My guess is will come up with Chair Yellen today. But if I and I won't come up this mathy, but let's do mathy because it's surveillance. If you inflation adjust the Fed funds target rate, I mean, it's better. It's reflating, but it's still a negative Fed funds target rate. And I calculate it's about two rate rises more. Does she have headroom here? From a music standpoint, does she have headroom to work with where she can raise rates once or twice more and really not jar the markets? I think she does. But I think at the same time, the Fed is moving on a path which is very conditional on the idea that not only is growth solid, not only do you need to normalize policy, but that inflation is normalizing. And I think that's where in the next few months, the actual readings on inflation are so important because I'm certainly <clears throat> thinking the Fed's going to go in December. But if we don't get <coughs> a sign that inflation is moving back on the path, I think they will hold um, as they look at the economy into the latter part of the year. Let me g give you the email that I get from people all the time, which is a high service sector inflation and outright goods deflation or at least disinflation as well. Should Chair Yellen parse between a dominant service sector inflation that's 3% plus and goods that is uh, less so? Um, I think to some degree, and I think in particular the fact that the goods deflation we've been seeing is largely related to the dollar and international forces, which we can now see fading as an impulse. So from a forward-looking point of view, I think that informs your inflation outlook. I would, though, note that service sector inflation is higher but service sector inflation has been a big part of the surprise to the downside that we've had in the last few months. And making sense of that, uh, the telecommunication charges, the housing costs moving off, and a few right. other things does become right. key to the outlook. And now we add to J.P. Morgan Research by going to Scarlet Foo, the keeper of six cell phone bills. Have you, have you taken advantage of the Scarlet all on the show? All we hear about is wireless disinflation. Oh, no, I totally I, have. My, my cell phone bill has now gone down to $200 a month for four different lines. So Mr. I'm Tucker, would you like to weigh in? That has not occurred at the Keene household. Uh, well, the one I got from AARP is uh, $10 a month, and that's held pretty steady. Yeah, Bruce, John, Dang, John has one. a cell phone in the Mike, the, the Michael Douglas movie with Kathleen Turner from a few years ago. Romancing yes. the Stone. But this, but, oh, 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 excuse me. The Celebrity Lodestone, Scarlet Fu Ways. How did you know that, Scarlet? That's just a special talent. Bruce, does that matter, all this one-off inflation stuff? Don't you sum it all together? Um, well, I think when you start adding up one-offs, they start to become the, the overall picture. Uh, that said, I do think in telecommunication charges, yeah. there, was a, there was a methodological change that has combined the increased competitiveness in the sector and parsing through what is the one-off and what is the trend uh, becomes the issue. And that, that is really the call for the Fed in terms of rates. I'd emphasize I don't think the inflation outlook is going to drive the balance sheet movement. The balance sheet movement, I think, comes as long as the Fed is comfortable on growth. And I think there's every reason for them to feel that way. All right. Speaking of the inflation outlook, we have some red heads, red headlines on the Bloomberg here from OPEC. It's just released its uh, 2018 outlook. And OPEC sees demand for its crude oil in 2018 below its current production. So again, OPEC seeing demand for its crude oil in 2018 below its current production. Barkindo, who of course heads up OPEC, uh, says that OPEC is optimistic on achieving its goals of cut steel in the second half of this year. And that 2018 demand for its crude oil of 32.2 million barrels per day is lower than 2017. Yeah, well, I think it's interesting. What does J.P. Morgan say about global demand? I mean, you look, Bruce, it, 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 demand dynamics are a lot harder to judge than supply, isn't it? So 
First, I would say that when we look at the fall in oil prices we've had in the last two or three months, yeah. we don't see it as being reflective of a material fall off in the demand for energy. Secondly, and more broadly, when we look at our demand indicators, and we track global demand quite closely, we've seen a fairly nice acceleration in retail spending and a surprisingly continued strength in the capital goods space, which started off the year very strong and we thought was going to cool. So the demand side of the global economy, and it's a broad-based story, uh, has been, I think, impressive here. In fact, one of the things that's holding back U.S. growth in the second quarter is the fact that the demand growth is not being accompanied by inventory building, which I think is actually somewhat of a positive as we look forward into the second mm -hmm. half of the year. Let's come back with Bruce Kasman and J.P. Morgan with us as well. Tom Keenan, a Scarlet Foo in for David Gurra. We, we had a Gurra sighting, I believe, this morning. We did have a Gurra sighting, and he is in Sun Valley. We've confirmed that. In yeah. fact, we've arranged for him to, to make an appearance on surveillance by phone, of course. And he'll it, be on Bloomer Television all day today as well. That's very, very good. I, you know, folks, it's, it's so good to have Scarlet Foo with us, as we mentioned, romancing the stone. I, I would have never <laughs> No, there's that, my value add. There, your value add. We say good morning to Ella and Alexander. These are the twins of of the Nespresso guy. The Nespresso guy. Yeah, Mr. Clooney. You call him the Nespresso guy? I don't think most people refer to him that seen, way. I don't think I've seen his movies. Maybe I saw Oceans. You don't even whatever. know who he is. No, I know who no, he is. Because when, when he comes in, when Mr. Clooney <laughs> comes in to see Mr. Rose, like the whole building stops. Right, but like, no one calls him the, the Nespresso guy. Oh, I don't. I was. Yeah, Danny Ocean, no problem. Doesn't he do Nespresso? Does he? He does. He does. Thank you, Colin. That's not what he's known for, Please. at least in the Move U.S. On. Along yeah. my cohorts, that's not what he's known for. That's more celebrity chat than David Gurr and I have done in the last year. Scarlet Foo with us on more economics, on that to come. finance, investment, and uh, celebrity chit chat as well. We continue seriously with Bruce Kasman. Bloomberg Business Week, folks. Last week on technology. Um, I, I, I don't really have a bead on the new issue, the digital issue, the print issue, other than to say it will be must read for all of global Wall Street. It will have a real feature in focus on one of the doers on Wall Street, movers and shakers. I know this, Scarlet, because um, one of the printing trucks broke down in front of my manse <laughs> and I could see the issues in the back as I got you in got a glimpse. surveillance limo to go to Teterboro today to get the Sikorsky here. You know, and, of course, so you can pick up your advanced copy as well at the office. You forgot about that. Yeah, we do that like in 24 hours. But I'm really looking forward to the new Bloomberg Business Week. And this week is a global Wall Street uh, issue, Germain, for uh, any and all listening uh, this morning. We are with Bruce Kasman of J.P. Morgan. And, Bruce, I really want to rip up the script here. I guess we can talk monetary theory. But everything shifted in the last 12 hours with a political story about Gary Cohn is sort of the front runner to be the new Janet Yellen, to be the chairman of the Federal Reserve System, I guess next spring, next late winter, whatever, what, 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 whatever it is. If we have Mr. Quarles and if we have Mr. Cohn, then how important is the other vice chairman, that slot now taken by Stanley Fisher? I think it, it would be important. As, as we know, Gary Cohn has got a lot of experience in financial markets, but he has no experience as a policymaker, no experience in setting monetary policy or as a as a you know in terms of his background as an, an education so i think he is a a good manager is going to rely a lot on the expertise at the fed and there's a lot of turnover as you noted uh, there's going to be cumulatively five slots turning over at the federal reserve board so the people who fill that along with the staff are going to be very important i think in terms of his education in terms of his performance if he is the next fed chair 
Do other Fed officials leave voluntarily if uh, there is a new Fed chair coming on? For instance, will we see Lyle Brainard stay on? Will we see the other governor stay on? Or do they then kind of gracefully exit? Well, on the board, you've got three seats open already. Mm -hmm. Uh, You've got uh, uh, Stan Fisher's seat up in the middle of next year and Janet Yellen. So that's already five of the seven. Uh, You have uh, Brainard and Powell who have no obligation in any way to to leave. And we don't have any signals that they are thinking of leaving. Um, I don't really expect it, but it's certainly possible uh, that Brainard, particularly who's got, I think, aspirations to do other things, might at some point here uh, decide to leave. The reason I ask is because if Gary Cohn were to become Fed chair, that'd be a break from what we've seen in the past, which is it was fairly well telegraphed. Janet Yellen would be the Fed chair after Ben Bernanke. Ben Bernanke's ascension to Fed chair was not a huge surprise after Alan Greenspan. Yeah. This would be a complete left turn or right turn or a U-turn or just going off into a different dimension. Well, I, I would note that uh, as we were sitting here last year at this time, we were debating Larry Summers versus Janet Yellen, and it, that did have an impact on the market as the market began to think Larry Summers might have a, a different monetary policy approach. Uh, so I do think there is an, uh, a possibility here that the uncertainty is going to start to become a factor for the market. But the point I think that's really important in what you're making is that there's a link between Paul Volcker Alan Greenspan, Ben Bernanke, Janet Yellen, in terms of experienced policymakers, people who are trained to do monetary policy, which we might be breaking now. And that is something which I think is important. Well, I mean, I mean, Bruce, a little history here. This is before uh, Mr. Cloney. You know, this is like ancient history, Scarlet. OK, I'll, I'll, I'll Arthur listen Byrne, up here. Arthur Burns was a Columbia PhD. And yep. there was a real debate about how Chairman Burns did. And then we had a guy who supported Hubert Humphrey, supported Jimmy Carter, had a text on history, that kind of thing, G. William Miller. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've been down this route before in relatively recent history, haven't we, Bruce? Well, we've been down the road of having uh, Fed chairs who haven't succeeded, and G. William Miller was one and, and was not trained as an economist. I'd like to, as a trained economist, believe that that's the necessary qualification. I don't think that is, but I do believe experience and training do matter here. And if we come with a new Fed chair that doesn't have those characteristics, as you were mentioning, Scarlett, they'll need to rely more on the institution. And if they don't, they will potentially get us into trouble. It's going to be interesting to see a good manager, someone with financial market experience could do a good job at the Fed, but they need the institutional uh, backdrop to really rely on. All right. So as we look ahead to Fed Chair Yellen's testimony uh, at 10 a.m. this morning, what would be the most notable thing she could say to quell some concerns or clear up some uncertainty today? Well, I think the most important thing we're looking for is, is, is greater clarity on the timing of when they're going to make the balance sheet announcement. The Fed has told us they're going to do it soon. And I think soon for most people's minds just means sometime this year. The minutes also suggest that the decision has not been made as to the exact timing. Uh, getting a little more emphasis from Yellen about how soon is soon, is soon possibly July, uh, which is very soon, uh, September, or is it more likely to be out towards the end of the year? I think that's mm. going to be the most important thing we're going to look okay. for. Bruce, thank you. Bruce Kasman, Chief Economist, J.P. Morgan, very generous of his time this morning. Scarlett Fu and Tom Keene, stay with us coast to coast. This is Bloomberg.
she took science at Brown one course. It was like, you know, first week. Uh, what'd you take? Did you take physics and chemistry? Did you do the real grind? No, we didn't have to. You didn't? We don't have a core curriculum. Have to? I took I took math. They don't have took... a core curriculum at Brown. Yes, you can exactly. take whatever you want. You design we, your own when curriculum. we were in school, we had to take this stuff and read Leviathan cover to cover as well. It's just maybe of, a little bit more advanced, a little bit more no, precocious. Older we don't is, have to take old, the core. Older is the word you're looking for. <laughs> uh, Libby, we're all getting older. Uh, even at the Pacific Investment Management Company, about what's going on in uh, Washington. Your leader, Mr. Ivickson, after getting briefed by Liberty Cantrell, uh, said this may actually affect investments. Do you agree with uh, Mr. Ivison, or, or do you think he was uh, not misquoted, but maybe just too much? Well, I think um, you're taking a step back. We have been skeptical that the president's agenda would be passed as quickly as we think that at least markets have priced in in the very beginning. We think that market expectations, especially in the bond market, have come back more down to earth now in terms of um, their expectations for, say, fiscal expansion. So I think what he was saying yesterday was we've always, we've always been, I would say, more cautious about the pace and scope of fiscal expansion, but what's going on on the Hill in terms of the Russian investigation only exacerbates that. And remind us, Libby, of the importance of the health care bill and how it determines the timing of everything else that the White House wants to accomplish and the Republican Congress wants to accomplish. Yeah, exactly. I mean, to use a little bit of a pro- prosaic analogy, you just think about kind of a train cars through a tunnel that you have to actually get health care kind of off, of off of the agenda before you can move on to the fiscal year 18 budget, which then sets up something called for the reconciliation process, which is, um, you know, incredibly um, you know, sort of inside baseball. But the important thing about reconciliation is that it allows tax reform to be passed with only 50 votes, not 60 votes in the Senate. And then you can move on to tax reform. So health care, the fiscal year 18 budget, and then only then you can go, can you move on to tax reform? So again, and kind and of, t- yeah, tra- uh, sorry, because tra- train cars through a, through a tunnel. I like that analogy. And we've seen how important it is to only be able to pass something with 50 votes with the difficulty getting this health care bill off the ground here. Uh, does Mitch McConnell canceling the first two weeks of the August recess change anything here? You know, I I, I would be um, I am personally skeptical. Uh, the the reason is is that this is this is going to be a heavy lift from the beginning. Um, get healthcare again, probably the most complex area of policymaking on the Hill. There has not been unanimity among Republicans on healthcare for like thirty years. So the fact that this has been you know a, a harder slog than I think something some people expected is not necessarily surprising to us at. at Pimco, yeah. I don't think extending recess for two weeks is really right. going to change those dynamics. It's not really your remit, but I'm going to ask the question. Anyways, Greg Vellier stunning us, I believe it was two days ago, with the idea the Republicans could lose the House. Is that within your reading and your research? Uh, you know, look, they they need to lose 24 seats in order to lose the House um, because of redistricting. That still looks like it could be difficult. However, if it is a wave election mm-hmm. and Democrats are mobilized and they run good candidates, it is absolutely possible. Wow. That is a wow. Idea. Although the special elections <clears throat> don't give us reason to believe that that might be likely. Yeah, However, yeah. I would I would just I mean I would just caveat that is that those special elections were in really red districts, yeah. um, including kind of ruby red districts, and the margins with which those Republicans won were <clears throat> much smaller than well, what they what Trump had would just just a few we, uh, sorry months before. Libby Cantrell with us with Pimco to drive the conversation forward. Here is Scarlett Lundquist. <laughs> 
Thank you for that introduction. I love it when you do that. I am in for David Gura, who is in Sun Valley, Idaho. We'll be checking in with him later. He's attending the Allen & Co. Media Conference. Tom, as you mentioned, our guest right now is Libby Cantrell. She's EVP, Executive Vice President of PIMCO, but that doesn't really explain what she does. She analyzes and coordinates PIMCO's response to public policy issues. And of course, on the forefront of public policy right now is health care. We talked, Libby, about how uh, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell extended the or I should say delayed uh, the August recess by the first two weeks. So they don't get to go home. They have to stay in Washington to work on the health care bill. If they don't get anything done in these first two weeks of August, what happens then? What What's the next step? Well, I think that they will, I, I would presume that they would start trying to work with Democrats. I think that um, for many folks on the Hill, that has seemed like the, the sort of next lo- logical step, um, just because you know, these things, again, they're difficult. There hasn't been agreement among the Republican caucus, and it'll be much, much easier if they do this on a bipartisan basis. They will have a lot more cushion in terms of actually passing legislation. So I think that's probably the next step. However, as we were just talking about, that is that will predicate the timing or determine the timing of things like tax reform and the budget. And so if the Healthcare sort of hijacks the congressional agenda in the fall. Then that means that it could ta- tax reform could even slip further. So if they work with Democrats on healthcare, they can't do tax reform at the same time, can they? Right, because you're precluded from considering two reconciliation bills at once. Mm. Um, so if they if they go at a, if they go with Democrats and that gives them a little bit more fungibility, then they can pass a fiscal year 18 budget. But I think something that people should just pay attention to this fall it is it is not clear that the road to passage for fiscal year 18 budget is going to be an easy one among Republicans. There is a lot of sort of conflict about how much spending um, they want to um, have for sort of entitlement programs over the next 10 years. Should there be spending cuts, sort of the, the how, how significant should those spending cuts be? Um, and if they don't pass a fiscal year 18 budget, they will not be able to consider tax reform under reconciliation, which means that they would actually have to do a bipartisan tax bill, which then I think and decreases the chances that we'll see tax before the midterms pretty significantly. Sounds like a big old mess, Tom. <laughs> Maybe that's the point. And I think Scarlett makes a really good point, Libby. Legislation is always difficult, always ugly. Is the system broken? I mean, we used to have committee hearings and August gentlemen and women Olympia Snow would chime in. They used to have open hearings, for that matter. Yeah, but, you know, I can't remember who. I'll I'll give credit to either the Post or the New York Times. Had a great chart which showed the Republican hearings of this health care process versus whatever the other one. They were, I mean, mean, it's a new world, isn't it? Yeah, we've had no public hearings on health care. It's a new world. And unlike Obamacare, you know, there were 100 hearings in the Senate. There, I think, were 89 in the House on Obamacare. That still was a partisan bill. I would just I, I would argue that passing partisan legislation in Washington is really difficult and arguably doesn't necessarily lead to great policymaking. And you can look at sort of um, examples throughout history. I think Obamacare probably being one of those where partisan processes like reconciliation that basically are predicated on passing legislation just by one party's support, it just doesn't produce yeah. the policy. Well, Scarlett, so, help me your celebrity lodestone. My vast knowledge of your world, Libby, is Tommy Lee. Jones in the movie Lincoln. And, and, you know, I mean, that's my idea. Civics lesson was the yelling and screaming of 1863 and the Emancipation Proclamation. 
really nothing's changed except now it's all going private, right? Yeah, and it's going very partisan. Um, you know, I think the other thing that's changed is that expectations, uh, the, the way that they're setting expectations are just, I don't think they're realistic. So to put it into context, to pass the Reagan tax reform bill in 1986, that basically took three years from start to finish. To pass Obamacare took 14 months. And again, that was via, you know, a partisan process. I think that, that the idea that they were going to be able to pass health care, tax reform, infrastructure, deregulation in one year, that seems Herculean under the best of circumstances. And given the specter of the Russia investigation, it just, I, you know, arguably, it just seems completely unrealistic at this point. You brought up the Russian investigation. Um, I know that you coordinate the re- PIMCO's response to public policy issues. Is this a public policy issue in any way? I mean, I, I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't argue for our, a PIMCO um, specifically, but clearly, you know, how it affects the domestic agenda will impact markets. And if it does lead to, um, you know, more sort of destabilizing events, I don't think anybody thinks that impeachment is likely at this point. But clearly, if that were the the end game, not saying that it will be. But if that were, then that would also be very destabilizing and something that, you know, markets and PIMCO would pay attention to. President Trump came back from the G20 meeting, I think, believing that he had a good showing. He, he did what he wanted to do. He got a message out. He had a two and a half hour meeting with Vladimir Putin. I mean, he came back and he felt good. Uh, this all these Russian allegations, uh, the emails, Donald Trump Jr.'s uh, email, his tweets, all of that, it, it kind of detracts from that. To what extent has the good work that the president feels he's accomplished at G20 been undone? Yeah, I mean, I I think that this has been a pattern, honestly, where the White House, the administration has felt like they've had successes, um, particularly on the international stage. And then they come back to sort of the realities of, um, you know, a domestic situation that's not as favorable. This president has low approval ratings, um, you know, historically low if you look at, you know, other presidencies in modern history. And, um, you know, I don't know if one good trip really changes that dynamic. You've been following the headlines from G20, right? Yeah, I, 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 I look at it as the president coming home. And of course, we had no idea what he was coming back back into. I mean, it's it's not lame duck. It's original duck. We've never been here. Is is that wonderful yeah. Vox article yesterday was 17 experts on collusion and conspiracy, which none of us studied in school, except the lawyers listening. Uh, I, I mean, the fact is, Libby, what's the forward view for Republicans given this political chaos? Yeah, I mean, I think Republicans on the Hill and Congress really, really want to put some points on the board, so to speak. So they really want to see some legislative win. As we discussed, health care looks less likely that they'll see a legislative win on that, at least on a partisan basis. Um, So that means that they will, I think, really try to focus on tax reform. But if they use reconciliation, uh, it means that they have the same kind of voting dynamic. You need to get 50 of 52 senators and Republican senators to sign on to what is probably not going to be an easy bill. Um, it, I, well, you know, I just think it's it, it's Herculean, yeah, honestly, and, and, at this and point. And Greg Vallier Scarlett has, you know, within his wonderful note this morning, he mentions that conservatives will be just in uproar over the idea of keeping the two taxes of the Affordable yep. Care Act. 
Not that I know the, the math. The three point eight percent Obamacare tax on wealthy individuals, oh, thank you. and the zero point eight percent payroll tax hike. That's what you're oh, referring thank to, you. right? And that will arguably make the CBO score better, um, which I think McConnell is mindful um, of. Which is part of yeah, part of the objective. It's also trying to assuage uh, moderates by uh, funding Medicaid a little bit yeah. better than the previous legislation. I don't. I still don't think okay. that gets them there. Very quickly, we get questions in from our guests, like you know, how do I get my kid in the brown or, you know, important <laughs> things like that. Libby, here's a smart question. Uh, thank you, Cleveland, uh, for this. And we're talking here about the dynamic of the new Republican Party, the Trump Republican Party, which is cuts. But is there any fiscal responsibility with that? I mean, are the deficit hawks? Is it just out the window? Well, I I think in terms of the Trump administration, there's probably a mixed view. Um, of course, OMB Director um, McMulvaney was probably the leading deficit hawk when he was a member of Congress. Um, but the Secretary Mnuchin's, the NEC Director um, Cones, they might be able to actually allow for a little <clears throat> bit more a deficit expansion. However, a big however, mm-hmm. Congress is the gatekeeper. And those deficit hawks among the Republicans, including Speaker yeah. Ryan, still very much exist. There's a president quick does the president understand that the Congress is the gatekeeper? I don't think he does. No expression. I don't mean yeah. politically. I just haven't seen any evidence. Yeah, I don't. You know, look, like there has been there's always a learning curve for a first time administration in terms of working with Congress. I would argue this learning curve has been a lot steeper. OK, Libby Cantrell, thank you so much with Pemcar. Thanks to Mr. Iveson when he reports into you to see if he did OK. Tell him he did think he did. He did well. I'd love to have Dan Iveson on at some point. Scarlett flew in for David Gurra, bear hunting in Sun Valley. This is Bloomberg. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. With virtual reality, virtually everything will change. Discover opportunities in a transforming world. B of A M L dot com slash VR. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner and Smith. Incorporated. I put out that video, uh, Scarlett, of, of David bicycling this morning with a grizzly bear <laughs> running after him. That was that was something that doesn't happen on Park Slope in Brooklyn. It doesn't happen on uh, Lexington Avenue in Midtown Manhattan either. So we went straight to the source and we brought in David Gura, who is in Sun Valley, Idaho. Uh, the flannel-clad David Gura. Uh, David, you have a full day of interviews with some all-stars. Yeah, no, it's it's uh, been great thus far, Tom. Scarlett, thank you very much. And, and this is the uh, one occasion I get to wear my Mackinac, Filson Mackinac hat on <laughs> on air. Uh, yeah, no, it's, it's an incredible conference in, in terms of who comes here. It started out as a small conference centering on media. It's grown much bigger a sense. And you look at the themes each year to see what the conversations are going to be like. There's a big focus on foreign policy. We saw a retired General David Petraeus arrive uh, yesterday. Mm-hmm. General Stanley McChrystal is going to be here. Uh, Ambassador Richard Haas, of course, friend of surveillance, will be here uh, speaking as well. Uh, there's a focus on AI this year. Roni Abovitz of Magic Leap is going to be here. David Kenny, who heads up Watson uh, for IBM. AI, a big focus. And then healthcare, uh, something, of course, that's important to the participants here and to everyone in the, in the U.S. as uh, Congress continues to debate what's going to happen to healthcare policy. A lot of insurance company CEOs here, the heads of some major hospitals as well. I sat down uh, with Dr. Toby Cosgrove of the Cleveland Clinic yesterday. He's here to uh, convene a, a panel on uh, the opioid crisis in the U.S. And we started off by talking about uh, what he thinks about the Republican health care bill uh, in the Senate. Here's what he had to say. Here's that conversation. We've seen the back and forth here 
among legislators over their July 4th recess to come back to Washington. Uh, Mitch McConnell says there's going to be a bill on, on Thursday. How optimistic are you that that's going to lead uh, to change in health care in this country? First of all, I don't think the bill is going to get passed. I think the legislators went out, they heard a lot from their constituents across the country being very upset about the, the possibility of having a number of people not being covered in the future. What are you uh, worried about when it comes to health care? Uh, yes, there's uh, access to care and uh, affordable insurance, but what are the big issues that you're, you're concerned with right now? Well, one of the big issues that I think we have to talk about is the health of the country as a whole. Mm. We have an obesity crisis where a third of the country now is obese, and that accounts for 10% of the health care costs in the United States. Uh, we have a smoking continues to be 18%, the, the major cause of uh, reversible cause of cancer, a preventable cause of cancer. And we have an opiate uh, crisis uh, with uh, 62,000 people dying this year, one every 19 minutes uh, dying of overdoses of opiates. This is a big problem. That's astonishing uh, statistic. Do you think people get that? Are people coming around to realizing how big a crisis this is? Well, I think increasingly you're starting to, but I don't think most people understand, just like when I told you the data, you went, wow, think, that's a yeah. lot. Uh, and I think most people, even very educated people in the know, don't realize the magnitude of the problem until the vast majority of the people in the United States understand how serious the problem is and the danger of these drugs, I don't think we're going to see something uh, major change. You meet with uh, politicians from across the spectrum, including the President of the United States. What don't politicians get about health policy? Why is it so hard to have a conversation about policy exclusive of politics? Well, the discussion right now is going on around politics and cost. It is not going on around health care reform. And health care reform is going to have to deal with a major problem, which is the escalating cost of health care, uh, which is, uh, and we need to have federal action, both administrative and legislative, to make uh, care of people who are sick more efficient. And we need to deal with the epidemics that I just spoke about. Early on, we saw a variety of business people walking in and out of the White House that meet with the president and leave. You're part of the strategic and policy forum the president has convened with Steve Schwartzman. Uh, how well is it working? Uh, what's that group like? Do you feel like they're listening to what you have to say? Well, it's a very interactive hour and a half or two hours that we have with, with the president. Uh, he's very engaged, and we all are trying to bring our best ideas. Now, where they go, I don't think anybody can say at this point, but it's a very interactive period of time. That's Dr. Toby Cosgrove there of the Cleveland Clinic, Tom and Scarlett. I caught up with him before he uh, embarked on a hike up a nearby hill here. Of course, uh, we are situated in a very beautiful place. Interesting conference because it's half scheduled, half yeah. programmed with panels mm -hmm. like the one I described. The other half, just an opportunity for these participants to talk to one another about any number of issues. Right. What is the initial buzz, particularly, uh, David, with the distraction of the city to the east, Washington? A lot of people are talking about regulation uh, here. It's, it's a very funny conference in that the media is invited to stand on the sidelines. We're not invited into the conference itself. So yesterday, we really just sort of post up outside the lodge and talk to people uh, as they arrive. And, and regulation seemed like a through line uh, when I chatted with, with everybody who had come over to to chat. Ken Langone said that he thinks the president is keeping his promises. We're seeing the regulatory burden uh, lightened. You talked to uh, Michael Eisner, who, of course, was the former CEO of Disney. He thinks that there's pluses and minuses to lighter regulation, especially when it comes to media and telecommunications. Yeah. And then David Zaslav, who heads up Discovery Communications, saying uh, he's optimistic. He thinks the president is taking good steps towards lightening regulation, but he's still taking a wait-and-see approach. And, of course, David, uh, this is a media conference as well, and there's a lot of curiosity over whether the White House directed uh, 
arms of government will approve the purchase of AT&T, uh, of Time Warner by AT&T. Um, a lot at stake there for companies, and of course the, the president's displeasure with some of the reporting from CNN has kind of played into the speculation on whether that will be done. Are people talking about that? I mean, I know it, it's, it's, it's beyond their purview and to actually speculate on what can be done, and, but this is a conference at which a lot of deals, or the, the seeds of deals, get, get, get sown, right? Absolutely. And Jeff Bucus of Time Warner is here. He did not uh, meet our request for an interview. We did yell at Jeff as he arrived. He did not come over to chat. I think it's fair to say a lot of the participants in this conference are watching that deal closely to see what happens to it, what, what, what uh, the Justice Department is going to say about it, if the FCC takes it up, what the FCC is going to do uh, with it. I think it's a litmus test to, for a lot of them. Um, and, and just the conversation here continues to center around content and the future of media and who's going to control uh, what. Of course, uh, Sherry Redstone is here. Uh, yes, last, last year she was the real focus of this conference, Scarlett and Tom. People wondering what was going to happen with CBS and Viacom. We saw Les Moonves of CBS yesterday as he arrived. Uh, we asked him explicitly if CBS was considering buying a movie studio like Lionsgate. He said, no, the, the CBS has no interest. He's very happy with where CBS is uh, today. But consolidation, the future of content, still very much front and center here uh, in Sun Valley. Yeah, I, I, I think that uh, as well with Verizon CEO Loam, like Adam is there because he acquired Yahoo's uh, internet assets, but there's a lot of questions about whether Verizon has to do more to continue to bolster its standing. David, who will you be speaking with later today? I, I look at the rundown for uh, the television programs this afternoon and your name is all over it. <laughs> I want to talk with Tim Armstrong. You mentioned uh, Verizon, of course, Tim Armstrong, now the CEO of Oath, uh, which is this hybrid of, of AOL uh, and the Yahoo assets that Verizon acquired. I'm going to be speaking with Ambassador William Burns, a former deputy secretary of state, a few more healthcare yeah. CEOs. Uh, so a very packed day, again, looking at yeah. uh, a lot of different businesses, not just focusing on medium. David, have you figured out yet the difference between a gopher snake and a western rattlesnake? I mean, this is a serious, <laughs> serious issue. I, they look the same. This is, but, but they're not. Yes, they, they look the same. I'm stepping lively, Tom. I'm mm -hmm. being careful, uh, keeping watch for bears. I saw a moose a few days ago. Uh, That's exciting. But, uh, you know, I, I, know that, I know that you care greatly about my, my safety when it comes to bears. Uh, no bear sightings yet, I can you confirm. Just, just, I, I need a clinic on gopher snakes versus rattlesnakes here. David Gura, <laughs> uh, wildlife <laughs> surveillance out in the tundra, the sawtooth range or whatever it's called. And I, good, good morning to all in Idaho listening. Sirius XM Channel 119. Love that you're listening in Montana. We have some good listeners in Montana. We hear from Scarlett from time to time. David Gurr, we'll hear back from him in the coming days um, at Sun Valley, uh, Idaho. Scarlett Fu and Tom Keene. Scarlett, we're sort of like Washington. I guess it's like what's next after the festivities of the last 48 hours. Festivities? That's an interesting way of describing it. Yeah, something. That's something for sure. Well, yeah. we have Janet Yellen speaking on Capitol Hill today. Uh, two days of important. testimony. So yeah. that's a big deal. And Bruce Kasman said it would be a big deal. Yes, yeah, especially in light of that political article yeah. uh, last night, which uh, indicated that the White House is primed to appoint or nominate Gary Cohn well, as Fed chief if he wants the job. It's July. We're not. We're, I guess we're not there yet. Maybe, maybe that's a post. Well, her day. her term ends what next February? Yeah, it's it's like into next year. It is always a joy to speak to the economist from Vanderbilt. French Hill is of Arkansas, the second congressional 
uh, district, and we enjoy speaking to him. And, of course, the most busy time for Congressman Hill, the House Financial Services Committee, and many other events in Washington. Uh, I want to start on a light note, uh, uh, Congressman, if I could, which is in 1865, it wasn't funny. Congress people that stayed in August in 1865, a time of great worry over cholera, really had to worry about the ugly weather of Washington. Now we make jokes about it. What are you people going to do as your recess is cut short? Is that going to affect you directly? Well, Tom, good morning. Always great to be with you. Always appreciate the Vanderbilt plug. Uh, I think staying in, in Washington in August is a source of infectious diseases with just a bad attitude in this day and age. Yeah. But uh, I'll tell you, the Senate has proposed uh, to do two weeks more and try to get more of their work done. We yeah. in the House have a more orderly life, and we think we've gotten our work done. So I'm, I'm eager to see them carry the water. So you'll be up on the coast of Maine, no doubt, with the independent Angus King enjoying the uh, healthy, clean air of Maine. Well, you know, we're here to work. I mean, we uh, uh, if we need to be in session, we ought to be in session. That's my view. And if we need to be in the district, right. we need to be in the district. Uh, there are so many topics to go with now, but let me go to Chair Yellen. Uh-huh. Is it appropriate for you to ask Chair Yellen or anybody else today about Gary Cohn in the future of the Fed, are we are we tilting towards a Trump Fed that will not be monetary PhDs, but will be people like uh, Randall Quarles, people like Gary Cohn, people like Kevin Warsh? Is that where we're heading? Well, Tom, I've always supported the Fed, a mix of governors. I think governors yeah. need to have business experience and banking experience, and we need to have people with uh, uh, economic policy experience on the Fed. I think it should always be a good mix to have the best discussion about setting interest rate policy. I, I get that. Um, I wonder, though, as Chair Yellen gets ready to testify before the House Financial Services Committee uh, this afternoon, uh, this morning, I should say, whether there's a sense among committee members that the Federal Reserve perhaps is rushing to reduce its balance sheet because of this internal deadline that her term is coming up in February and they want to get started on this before she leaves. Well, it's a good question. I think they should have, of course, my view, and it says that the Fed should have lowered interest rates to zero during the crisis, which they did. And as a banker at the time, I was not a big supporter of the QE moves. I don't think they got GDP or job improvements based on any of the QE actions. And for uh, I'm a big believer that the Fed should be treasuries only in terms of using treasuries as their open market operation. So, With that said, I do think, as Governor Powell has outlined, they should have a gradual reduction of the Fed balance sheet back to an appropriate size to be a neutral player in the economy. It was about 6% of GDP before the crisis. It's grown to 24% of GDP now, with a substantial uh, percentage of both the Treasury portfolio and the uh, government-backed CMS portfolio. Is the timing right for the Fed to pursue that now? Uh, There's all kinds of questions about whether the inflation that we've seen um, can start to pick up once again, uh, the level of productivity, growth with fiscal policy questions. Well, we we have not gotten the economic growth that we should have coming out of the recession. And and I believe it's partially for non-monetary policy structural factors, such as what we've done in the regulatory market, that we haven't been pro-growth in our, in our um, tax or uh, regulatory policies in the past eight years. But, you know, because uh, we can't leave the balance sheet and, and misprice uh, 
the economy that we have, I think they should lay yeah. out a plan uh, to both uh, raise rates if rates are indicated uh, to be so and shrink the balance sheet. But they have to do so in a thoughtful way, and they have to keep into mind all the exogenous factors going on in the economy, but yeah. not do it. Uh, I think is a mistake, and I think they should have started sooner, personally. If you're just joining us from the 2nd Congressional District, Arkansas, French Hill with the House Financial Services Committee as well. I'd be rude and inappropriate. You wouldn't come back on, Congressman, if I didn't ask you about the festivities in Washington. Are we distracted? Are we going to get any legislative leg, legislation done? And critically, are GOP members of the House at risk of re-election because of what we're seeing, the day-to-day scandals that we see within the Trump administration? Well, Tom, you've covered politics and economics a long time. You know that in every administration, there's yep. a series of main events, and then there's some side events uh, that are important, and they do impact policy, and we've certainly got that going on here. We've got investigations in both this House and Senate. We've got Bob Mueller doing an investigation. The U.S. let's let them do it. Let's see where the uh, cards fall out of those investigations. But in the meantime, let's stay focused on getting tax reform done, getting the reforms we need to do in the Affordable Care Act, and stay focused on... Is that wavering? With With what we've seen, Congressman, in the last 72 hours, is that wavering? I mean, it is exceptional, the anecdotes Scarlett and I have received in the last 24 hours. Is that commitment wavering among the grand old party? I don't see it wavering behind the scenes because we're committed to trying to get these three big planks that we think are important for our economy to grow faster, fix the Affordable Care Act, fix our, help fix our health markets, get tax reform, and get our regulatory process continued to be pro-growth. Mm-hmm. Is this distracting? Well, of course it's distracting. But is it keeping us from doing our job in our communities and among our our colleagues? Uh, it is. It is not restraining us from trying to have that right policy approach. Congressman, though, I wonder, who is your go-to person in the White House? Um, following these email disclosures from Donald Trump Jr., uh, getting yep. Jared Kushner involved, uh, getting Paul Manafort, who's no longer with the Trump administration involved, who is your go-to person for these initiatives on tax reform, on health care, on, on other legislation? Well, I'll say from the very beginning, early in the administration, and it was it was fortunate because they were not subject to the stall job by the minority leader over in the Senate. Gary Cohen, who's the National Economic Council director, staffed up with a good quality group of people with domestic and international economic mm-hmm. experience on the White House staff. And Secretary Mnuchin is now getting some of his top's leadership in place. And for those of us working on economic policy and tax policy, Really, it's the NEC staff on the White House staff and uh, the leadership with Secretary Mnuchin of the Treasury that we're working with on a regular basis. From all our listeners, Congressman, whatever their politics, it's good to have an economist uh, in the House of Representatives. French Hill with the 2nd Congressional District of Arkansas around Little Rock. You know, it's it's not like gerrymandered, Scarlett. It's like a real... District. A real district. Yeah, it's very cool. How unique. It's not one of these districts that goes stretches like made-up fiction. French Hill, he's in the House Financial Services Committee. Um, I, I really enjoy – he gives real answers, you know? It's and he's like an he's, economist, like you said. So yeah. when we talk to him about uh, what Chair Yellen is going to say later this morning, yeah. it resonates. Yeah. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. 
subscribe, and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. With virtual reality, virtually everything will change. Discover opportunities in a transforming world. B of AML.com slash VR. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated.